This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello there, and welcome to Barron's Live with Financial News here in London. I'm Kristen McGatchy, ESG and Careers Correspondent here at Financial News. Joining me today are uh, two special guests who don't really need much introduction, but here it is anyway. Uh, firstly, we have Desiree Fixler, Chief Content Officer at Attain, but probably better known as the Greenwashing Whistleblower at DWS. And we've got Tariq Fancy, Financial Analyst, and also probably better known as BlackRock's former Chief Investment Officer for Sustainable Investing. Thank you for joining me both. All right, so today we're going to be talking about a topic that has really gathered steam over the last year, particularly in the U.S., namely the anti-ESG movement. What began as a handful of Republican lawmakers blacklisting asset managers for green investment policies has become somewhat of a rallying cry against so-called woke investing. And after a difficult year for green funds in 2022, this rhetoric really hasn't helped things. Um, BlackRock, for instance, saw net zero or zero net flows into its U.S. domiciled sustainable funds last year, for instance. So turning to you both now, Desiree and Tarek, what is fueling the anti-ESG movement that we're seeing? Is it just politics or is there something more substantive here? Um, Yeah. You know, I, I think there are a number of factors. Um, so, I mean, of course, we know about this, you know, political uh, movement, this culture war. Um, but you've got, you know, a few other factors playing into this to this backlash against ESG performance, right? You know, at the start of this movement a few years ago, there were some folks saying that ESG guaranteed outperformance. It's enhanced diligence and better risk management, so you're going to outperform the market. Well, you know, recently we saw that's not always true. Um, and so you've got, you know, performance challenges. And then, um, you know, just consider all the regulation that's come out. There's also a backlash, you know, here in Europe, um, you know, against this tidal wave of regulation, whether it's SFDR for the asset management industry, um, CSRD, corporate reporting standards, um, where you have to report on what's called double materiality, um, and, and this taxonomy. Um, so there's a big pushback against this red tape and bureaucracy. Um, and, and then finally, of course, greenwashing. You know, there's been you know, pervasive greenwashing in the market. Um, and people, you know, are fed up with, you know, having to pay more for green products that turn out aren't very green. Yeah, I would. Uh, I, I agree with everything Desiree said. Now to add, you know, there's some part of it is political theater. Some part of it is substantive. You know, the parts that are political theater, are, of course, you know, they're supported by special interests and others that probably don't want CESG succeed. But, you know, some part of it is also that uh, there had been people talking about greenwashing and scandals for about a year before the Republicans stepped into the void and started criticizing it. Um, And on some level, you kind of see that there's a bit of opportunism that, you know, Ukraine is invaded, gas prices go up, and there's an opportunity to turn around and use ESG marketing against a lot of asset managers that are generally unpopular with the public, right? It's a bit of a vote winner if you're Ron DeSantis and you're attacking woke capitalism in Disney. And along comes, you know, an opportunity to sort of treat greenwashing as real. And, you know, in doing so, put 
big voices like Larry Fink at BlackRock in a corner because it's hard for him to get away from the marketing of ground, you know, how ESG creates real world impact by, you know, less lessening reliance on fossil fuels. Uh, in some sense, you know, the only way out is to admit that it's greenwashing and it has no real world impact. Um, but there are substantive areas of it, as, as, as Desiree mentioned. And I think, you know, one of them that has probably irked conservatives a lot is a lot of the work around the S in ESG, right? And a lot of which in, involves, you know, work around DEI that regardless of your own personal view, right, I think it's important for society. It wasn't ever clear that that um, was really going to unlock a great deal of return. Um, but ESG funds are, in many ways, a price segmentation strategy to align with your political preferences. And as probably a lot of people have noticed, you know, you're never going to get an ESG fund that says, you know, something that progressives like on the E, for example, you know, carbon emissions are bad, you'll make more money reducing them. And then flips the other side on the S and says, but, you know, we don't agree with DEI because the truth is, who are you going to sell that to? Right. Um, on some level, it's a price segmentation strategy like we're seeing across uh, all sectors, right, whether it's coffee brands or, or other things. And um, that price segmentation strategy applies particularly well to commoditized products like ETFs and passive you know, funds that have very, very low uh, uh, you know, basis point fees, where an ESG movement that is really just sort of a, a grab bag of a lot of progressive interests, whether supported by evidence or not, sells well. And you can see how the right might come out and say, hey, we don't like that. And by the way, we don't, you know, we want our own anti-ESG funds. Hmm. No, I think that's a really interesting point, actually, Tarek, and not one I had considered. Um, I, I would say over in Europe, the anti-ESG debate is, it tends to be framed as a very American problem. I've heard fund managers on more than one occasion say, that's not really something we have to worry about over here. But is that an accurate statement? I mean, Desiree, I think you kind of alluded to some of the ESG fatigue that we're seeing um, in terms of red tape and regulation. Uh, it is. Um, you have, you know, companies large and small here that are going to be forced to report out not just on their risk profile, but also impact profile. And companies, most companies are not B corporations. They're not, you know, set up with a mission or purpose other than their business model. Um, so, you know, that that is just not a realistic ask from regular way companies to report out on what is called double materiality, to report on your impact on the outside world. Um, and, and companies are, are pushing back and rightfully so. Uh, so I, I, I do think that you're seeing um, fatigue here, um, you know, both in Europe as well as in the, the UK. Yeah, I'd say that's right. I mean, the other thing is there's no real political constituency to back an anti-ESG backlash in the same way in Europe, right? I mean, there will be a bunch of substantive concerns, like Desiree mentioned, around reporting and, you know, adding potentially onerous restrictions and, and obligations on businesses. But, you know, that's a business backlash that you already might have seen in the U.S. And I think that's a little bit different than a, a large political constituency sort of pushing a lot of, of money and, uh, and articles and press and so on to argue against the entire movement, right? So in Europe, people will push back on certain regulations, but you won't really see them calling it woke capitalism or you know, sort of using the same lingo because the, the politicization of it isn't quite the same. Hmm. So it's a bit more subtle in that sense then? I think it's a bit more business oriented no matter where you land. 
Um, whereas in the U.S., it does seem like there's like a lot of things these days. There's a whole layer of politics and PR and narrative management that it's a little bit opportunistic. Again, which is not to say there aren't substantive concerns in what they're doing, but I don't think those alone would fuel the level of backlash that you're seeing. Right. Well, I mean, another topic I think that's come up quite a bit this year is whether we should stop saying ESG. Larry Fink weighed in on this topic earlier this year. He said it's just become too politicized. But I think other critics would argue that it's just sort of outgrown its usefulness at this point in time. Um, Desiree, you're nodding. I take it that's something you agree with. It is. Look, it served its purpose. Um, you know, in fact, I got I even got called out by a journalist that I still have ESG in my LinkedIn profile. I forgot to take that down. It did serve a purpose back in the day. It was about awareness of, you know, new risks and challenges and new, obviously, investment opportunities. Um, but unfortunately, this umbrella term, that's all it is. Um, is now powering, you know, a great deal of, of unfortunate, you know, culture wars. Um, there's a great deal of conflation because it means so many different things to people. Um, it's very ambiguous. So I think it's about time. It served its purpose to spread awareness. We now have um, the ISSB company sustainability reporting guidelines that I think are very practical and make sense. Um, but it's time for us to dismantle this kind of circus show. It's, you know, it's not a nice new shiny toy anymore. Um, and it's created way too much bureaucracy, made way too much, um, um, you know, lost time for companies and market participants. And we have to go back to, you know, to first principles. What are we actually talking about? Um, and again, I think that will go a long way to also de-escalate the cultural war, war stateside. You know, ESG is very much like it, you know, when you frame ESG and what it actually is, resilience plan planning, right? You know, resilience planning in a changing world, a rapidly changing world, right? Suddenly, I mean, how are you going to pick a fight, a political fight on that one? You know, your future proofing businesses, it's about adaptation. You've got a, like monumentous and like, you know, seismic change legislation coming out in the U.S., the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so, you know, it's here to stay. There's no doubt about that. Um, but let's frame it in, in what it actually is. If we're talking about climate risks, if we're talking about biodiversity loss, if we're talking about diversity issues, you know, you know, uh, healthcare availability, if we're talking about fair labor policies, just frame it there. It, it, it fits actually naturally in regular way of reporting. You don't need a bedazzled separate sustainability report anymore. Let's like, you know, chuck that away in ESG and just say what we mean and be specific, use specific clear language. Yeah, Adam, I, mean, I think, you know, the reality is that uh, within what has been built in the ESG industry, there are a number of useful ingredients, right? You have frameworks, data, standards, you know, a lot of young people who are very focused on it. And those ingredients can be applied in a useful way. But, you know, ESG, the term and sort of the industry, ESG 1.0, hasn't really achieved that, right? And so you have, you know, Larry Fink's is not going to use the term ESG anymore. I mean, his original position was that it's about investing and that BlackRock's a fiduciary. I mean, if that were the case and it gets politicized, you would double down. You'd turn around and say, hey, like, high Republicans, like, I thought you guys like making money too, right? <laughs> we're fiduciaries, it's good for returns. Uh, his response is consistent with it being a PR strategy. Right. And the PR strategy 
is going to, the value of that's going to be dependent on the point in time. So in 2020, there's a lot of great things you could say about ESG and the upside's high and the downside's low. And, you know, why wouldn't you put an ESG sticker on your fund or on your work just the way you 30 years ago might have put an organic sticker on an apple in the grocery store? And if no one's really regulating what it is to be organic, like you probably get more, sell more apples and maybe even for a little bit more money. But over time, I think people have looked and figured out that it really wasn't about investing in the way that people say. Like I learned to invest 20 years ago in 2003. We looked at environmental liabilities, right? We looked at a bunch of things in, you know, in distressed investing. That was a year before in 2004, the acronym ESG was founded. And it was in a UN report called Who Cares Wins. You know, it was a naive somewhat well-meaning report, but it wasn't about investing because no investor would actually grab a whole bunch of unrelated things and mash it into a single score, you know, where the G is already understood and sort of table stakes, where the S is very hard to quantify and measure. It doesn't scale across countries, right? Because, you know, the S values, you, you know, you have a hard time moving across the U.S. and finding agreement on those, much less if, you know, I'm talking to clients in the Middle East. I, I'm, I assure you the Saudis don't view the S the same way. But I think where it is going to go is, you know, again, where, where I will say though the S is great for marketing, right? Because you tap into the culture wars. But really where the opportunity is going forward is a lot of the, the areas under E around resource utilization, optimization. You have tens and tr trillions of dollars in the global economy going in a way that could be made more efficient, that could be made less polluting. Uh, a lot of the initiatives can improve margins. Those are completely apolitical. Right. And I think you could probably get people around the world to say, hey, look, if I can be more efficient in my supply chain uh, and then doing so reduce wastage and emissions, then that's kind of I call that an ESG strategy that even Ron DeSantis would love. Right. Because it's really not it doesn't matter where you are in the political aisle. It makes money and it reduces your footprint. I think I think the world will go in that direction. But I think there'll be a bit of an evolution as it moves for marketing, which really is sec I've never seen any investment area that had so you to be honest investment oriented people like it's like a tech firm where everyone's saying i'm going to create the new impact app at facebook and then you check the group and like no one's written any code right at some point you need a few people written code and so i think that evolution is occurring right now and those tools are devolving in ways that portfolio managers and investment allocators can use in a useful way but it's all not always with the same linkages to return as you know the marketing would have had us believe a few years ago and at this point, I just want to remind all our listeners, do feel free to submit Q&As uh, during the discussion. We will do our best to get around to as many as we can. Um, you know, I, because I have you both here, you know, I think you both have a really unique perspective on calling out industry greenwashing. So it would be remiss if I didn't ask you about that. Desiree, of course, you blew the whistle on DWS for overstating its green credentials. And Tarek, you left a you know, prestigious job at BlackRock um, and have been pretty fiercely crit critical of the inconsistencies you've seen with its ESG policy. Um, so at what point did you both decide, I'm going to do this, I'm going to kind of blow the lid off these two very powerful firms, and do you think it was worth it? Um, I mean, for me, it was a matter of law, regulation. Um, so I, I don't look back. I mean, I I guess I, I look back and maybe regret taking the job, uh, but um, you know, and what I did, absolutely no regrets. Um, I rolled with the punches, and when the and again, I, I will say this: there are a lot of very good people at DWS and Deutsche Bank. Unfortunately, there were 
a couple of bad apples um, on the management board. And when they, I, I spotted intentional misrepresentation. So when there were, you know, I, I was an editor in the annual report. And when I flagged these misstatements um, and management pushed back, I mean, you have no choice. There's no way I can sign off on something I've already written, spoken about, um, and raised concerns on, you know, ESG misstatements. They were, some were just exaggerations and some it was just outright wholly inaccurate and false. Um, so, you know, it was, that was my, and in fact, you know, that was part of my job. I mean, you know, being in charge of ESG, there's a, there's a G there, it's governance. And I am US trained. Um, I lived through the financial crisis. Um, so that was my role was to push back and make sure the firm was not going to get in trouble. And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, I called it out and that was a big boomerang. Um, did not expect it. Um, what happened next? I, you know, got fired. Uh, but thankfully, you know, the whole story came out in the press. Um, U.S. regulators jumped in and the German equivalents did. Um, you know, we'll see what, what's happened. But the one thing I will say, um, while it was a little bit dicey for me here and there in my life, um, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, the bad stuff that DWS has done has led to, to decent market reform. We've gone from, I think people would say, like greenwashing to like green hushing where, and I think that's good. I think it's a much better place to be green hushing. You know, shut up and just do it, right? Like, let's just get back to these first principles and, and not treat this as a PR exercise, dial down the rhetoric and up the action. And I think that it's been this cautionary tale for loads of other companies on what not to do. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the, the story, you know, while it took a while to get here, um, I think it's landed in a positive, on a positive note. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, first of all, Desiree was far more courageous uh, in what she did uh, than I was because she, um, you know, actually was a proper whistleblower. You know, I left on good terms from BlackRock. I we had a going away event. And uh, sometime after I, I, you know, I had already kind of concluded that a lot of what I'd seen was pretty, you know, it seemed to misrepresent a lot of how the economic system and how finance works. And I think you have to at some point ask a question, is it responsible leadership to be under the guise of responsible capitalism, you know, replacing substantive change, which our economic experts are telling us are probably going to come from mandatory uh, regulations led by government, things like a carbon tax, which are inconvenient, but work uh, and replacing that with sort of a pipe dream that like if you if you add some more data and metrics that the free market will self-correct on a market failure. Uh, that struck me as something that, you know, I don't think black people, black are, are bad in any way of doing it. I do think that there is a lack of leadership at the top to sort of stand on stage and and pitch that as a solution to some of the biggest social problems we have, you know, where, you know, or again, it, it runs exactly counter to what our experts are telling us. Um, and, you know, I think that's the major problem that for capitalism, I think the minor problem is, and it shouldn't be missed, is that it, that material misrepresentation also tends to exploit people who care, right? They actually want to make a difference. They're going to lean into an ESG fund because, you know, whatever the politics, they believe that it's going to bring about some change that they would like to see in the world. Those kind of things that tend to be particularly marketed to millennials and young people who are increasingly losing faith in capitalism. 
Uh, and I think that that, you know, besides is again, a small problem of exposing yourself to risks uh, uh, related to misrepresentation. It's also pretty irresponsible leadership at, you know, at this point in time. No, I think that actually, that's a very good point and dovetails nicely with um, a couple of questions we've had come in actually, you know, some people are wondering where do we go from here? Um, Mark uh, specifically wonders if the green investing space is stuck in a perpetual loop of change the narratives, change the words, change the guidelines, but um, notes that it's still, there's still a lot that is immeasurable, particularly particularly around the S and the G. So how does the ESG pendulum shift and what's the aftermath of all this? And that's a very big question. It is. Um, I mean, look, it's, my answer is not going to be, like, I'm not going to answer, I can't give a full answer, but I could say this, um, you know, we need more um, government action. Um, there's a role for the, for the capital markets to play, but, you know, they need, like the capital markets, it needs guardrails. Um, and I think it's, it's like, I'm, I don't want to sound glib, but, you know, you need carrot and stick here. Um, so on the one hand, you need to first tackle pervasive greenwashing and get every corporate executive to get the memo, right? You greenwash, that is, you know, that can be considered, you know, material misrepresentation, which can be considered securities fraud, and you're going to get in serious trouble. Um, and, you know, and once like we stop using ESG as this shiny new toy and this PR tool, and it comes back to embedding it as as transformation within a company to adapt to this changing world, right? It's core business adaptation. It's not some sideshow for, you know, corporate social responsibility that goes a long way. So again, the financial watchdogs have a role to play to crack down on misrepresentation. And then the other, you know, part of this is is the carrot is incentives, and I think you know there've been there's been some you know great government legislation passed. I mean, just think about it, you know, legislation on banning single use uh, packaging, you know, forcing you know supply chain um, diligence with regard to forced labor. Obviously, the big mama, the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, unleashing almost 400, you know, billion in incentives um, to invest in in clean tech. Um, so, so you know, we uh, you know um, banning the sale of combustion engine by 2035. You know, some pieces of legislation from around the world that has happened. So, you know, that those are examples of of ways that you know we can mobilize that transition. So, I think it's a mixture of the two with legislation in place and a watchdog, you know, cracking down just on greenwashing. I don't believe that the financial regulators should be prescriptive on how to invest, but just more about protecting investors and ensuring there's accurate disclosure. Um, I, I think with that mix, that's how we, we move ahead, but it's very much reliant on, on government action. Yeah, I agree hundred um, percent with that. And I would add, you know, on top of that, I, you know, I, I'm, where I'm spending my time is really looking at that transition from marketing to investing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there is a major mega trend that's going to unfold over 10 to 15 years. And I think on that part, a lot of people who are in the industry have talked about it are correct. I think that it, we haven't really zeroed in exactly on what that's going to look like because ESG 1.0 tended to be driven by marketing and sales teams. So you'll focus on you know the sexy areas that everyone wants to hear about. Um, 
and so it might be something in the S under ESG, and you'll say, you know, if you add it's something about DEI of your board members, right? Um, it's not clear to me that that added a lot of, I mean, no matter how useful it is for society, and that's, that's an important question, that that really is a magical ticket to returns, but it's kind of what people wanted to hear. When I was in the middle of the machine, you know, having a distressed investor's hat, like you kind of, you look for the boring areas that no one's focused on. And what I tended to find was that, you know, you lop off the G because again, it's table stakes. You, you lop off the S it's hard to measure and it doesn't scale. But within the E, even if you leave aside the oil and gas sector, you go industry by industry. There are areas where businesses can be much more efficient in terms of uh, resource optimization, right? In terms of the reuse economy, right? So the first being you reduce the amount of inputs for a certain amount of output. The second is you reduce your amount of virgin inputs, right? Uh, you can optimize your supply chain. Now, those areas, I think, are major trends that businesses will focus on the next you know, 10 to 15 years. And the ones that get it right will find margin improvement uh, as well as you know, better environmental footprints, right? And I think those are, are areas that, that can be completed within, you know, without even government regulation. I think that's the direction of travel. But that transition from marketing-driven ESG to investment-driven ESG I think is sort of starting to go on right now. And I think you're seeing a lot of investors sort of leaning into what the theses should be, you know, using a lot of the tools and the frameworks and, and the work that's been done, which I think of as, you know, potentially useful ingredients and applying them sector, you know, by sector. I mean, to give you an example, the construction industry wastes like 30% of lumber, right? I mean, if you stop to, if you look at fat, the fashion industry, I mean, the amount of you know, clothing that's burned because they can't seem to figure out their own demands, you know, and predict it. I mean, those are areas where efficiency actually overlaps uh, quite, quite effectively with, um, you know, impact in a way that's really not at all political. And I think that across sectors will be a trend that we'll see unfold over, you know, really over decades. And one more point to make, because we started this conversation on how substantive is the anti-ESG backlash is, you know, there have been recent um, research reports that have come out to show that in the U.S., um, you know, $400 billion was unleashed uh, between the Inflation Reduction Act and the Science Act. And that, according to certain research reports, approximately 80% of, of, of that money um, of, of the uptake of the Inflation Reduction Act and the Science Act has gone to Republican districts. Um, so particularly, I think it was Georgia and I think it was South Carolina, two states um, that have grabbed a large share of that money as, a, as an example. So even though there's this culture war um, and no Republican voted for the IRA, um, you still see that here it was when once the, the, the government incentives, the funding incentives were unleashed, that so far, I, I think it's about $224 billion, um, you know, has been pledged um, that this has gone into majority of red states. So it's here to stay. There's no doubt this transition is happening. Um, we just need to, you know, I just like we need to de-escalate this. And, and as Notarik has said, like just stop this, the political bickering and just talk about what it actually is. But it's this tremendous, you know, investment opportunity, employment opportunity. Um, and, and that is, this is long-term in Gibson. Hmm. So I like this question that's come in. This is from Patrick. 
what advice would you give to someone earlier in their careers already working in the ESG field? Should we stick with it or work on building out our skill sets in more traditional fields, e.g. finance or management consulting? Um, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think like that's the Tarek was saying was like just, you know, hitting on this earlier, like that increasingly like you need to be a sector specialist, you know, that is aware of sustainability. I think they go together. So you push through with it. But, you know, you do what you, you know, like what is it that you want to do if it's in finance or in another industry um, where is, you know, it's just like. Um, almost, you know, you know, sometimes like you, you write, like, you know, you, you know, you can code, like you're, you're an investment specialist portfolio manager, right? You know, who knows Python, it's the same thing, like you're aware, you know, of, of, you know, environmental and social challenges and uh, initiatives, um, risk management and spotting and, you know, you know, growth opportunities, that is just part of, you know, a supplement and whatever you're going to focus on. So you should definitely push on through and make it real. Yeah. I mean, I would add, uh, I mean, to be honest, I think it does help to get a core understanding of the, of really how the machine works before, because on some level investing is investing. And then ESG was this magical data set that you sprinkle on top and makes you a better investor. You know, the, I think if it were, if version 1.0 were actually what it was, sold as then you know you could hang your hat on that because you know very well a specific set of areas and data sets that you know add value to the machine the problem was the translation function didn't actually exist because a lot of the esg stuff what i saw was like you know gets through the grinder and it actually doesn't make money and it's not clear that it has any investment value and so i think it's almost useful for people in the industry to get a grounding first and like how does the business operate like how do they make profit because if you don't satisfy that nothing's going to happen Right. If you figure that part out and then you could figure out how ESG fits into it, particularly now because ESG is evolving to meet that need. Right. Again, from a marketing thing and a PR thing where there's a lot of value in greenwashing to suddenly people are pointing guns at you and suddenly you're green hushing. Uh, I think the next iteration will have to be aligned with you know what is said to be, but wasn't really in, you know, in the first instance, which is aligned with fiduciary duty and with how profit-seeking corporation can add value. And I think within that, there are huge opportunities, but they're not necessarily ones that are being talked about in the ESG space today. I think we're sort of still in, in the middle of that transition where it gets a bit professionalized and a bit more about risk and return uh, and less around marketing simply because the marketing value of it is diminished. Mm. So I think you touched on this point earlier, Tarek, but um, we've got a question here from James. Do you think the, the questions around the longevity of ESG are driven by many professionals in ESG roles being underqualified and unable to articulate some of the risks and opportunities sufficiently? I mean, it's an unpopular opinion, but I mean, yes. I mean, that's what, yeah. <laughs> what having been a CIO and an investment person who came from the distressed world, I mean, that's 100% what people were saying behind the scenes, right? I mean, mm -hmm. On some level, if you have a bunch of people saying, look, it's hard to create impact, right? I, I founded a tech nonprofit. It was really hard to create impact and measure it. It's kind of like juggling, right? Juggling is hard. Uh, so is investing, right? Beating the market is really hard. That's like walking a tightrope. I remember PMs telling me, listen, I'm getting told that, you know, that you can juggle and walk a tightrope by people who 
they weren't convinced had ever done either independently. Um, you know, that's tricky. It sounds, it sounds really attractive, but I think there's something in there, the tools in there. But again, I think that that professionalization is in, uh, is in process. And I would tell you a lot of the most interesting things that I'm seeing going on from an investment perspective are actually things people don't call ESG, right? They're people just doing stuff and they're building stuff and they're maybe reducing your carbon footprint. They're maybe innovating in this area or the other, but they don't really talk about ESG because if you're at that level of actually building the innovation, you're like deep in, in, the, in you know, a subset of the E somewhere down here that may be worth a trillion dollars, but you're not like doing all these things at the same time because again, the, the merger of all these terms together really does not make sense unless you think of it as a price segmentation strategy that is aligned to people's political tastes. Mm. I wanted to ask you both, this is another topic that has been coming up quite a bit. Um, I think this is from Desai Notes. There are a lot of claims on EVs that they are supporting the environment, specifically around what it takes to make an EV battery, including energy, rare materials, et cetera. So I think what they're referring to is, um, you know, a lot of the minerals needed to support the transition to net zero involves carbon intensive companies. So how do we justify that? How do we get around that? But you have to have, um, you know, an objective. Um, I mean, this, this is the real world. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm part of um, uh, an educational startup and, you know, these are our biggest lessons. We do sustainable finance um, trading simulations. Um, and um, in the real world, there are trade-offs. You know, oftentimes, you know, when you're operating as a portfolio manager, you're you know, I, I'm coming from the financial services industry as a banker, right? Sometimes you've got, you know, clashing stakeholders, you know, shareholder versus community, shareholder versus customer, you know, and also you have trade-offs between, guess what, environmental objectives and social objectives. Um, and you have to manage that and understand that this is not, it's not always a win-win world, right? And so, you know, you set your objective, and that objective is is subjective. That's your own objective that you know you're you're, you're aiming for, um, and you know you do the best job you can with clear disclosure um, if it is you know a product or service for the market, and you know and, and you know and part of risk you know would, would might be right you know we've made this investment in this company for you know because it's you know an electric vehicle company that will you know that is scaling up you know. The electrification of trucks, or um, you know, or another transport um, mode, and and we understand that that comes at you know short term, you know, high emissions from building infrastructure, building this. There might be some social hiccups as well, but you know, ultimately our objective is there, and you know, and here's the risk disclosure. Um, you know that that that's that's the best you can do, but understand that this is an imperfect world and. You know, there are often trade-offs. Um, you manage that with, like, through risk management and clear disclosure. Um, but, you know, you have an, an objective. Tesla, you know, for some is a wonderful um, sustainability company. And for others, like the S&P 500 index, check, check Tesla out. It's very subjective on, on how you view this. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't really add, I think... Uh... On top of that, say like for EVs, I think, you know, there's about a bunch of substantive questions being asked about the lifetime value and the, 
Yeah, I think these are really interesting questions. I don't know how you get around electrifying transportation of the fleet on some level, whether it's a panacea as pitched or, you know, it's going to be a long, hard process. I suspect it'll be the latter. But I think the other thing I would add is that a lot of the areas that seem to get a lot of attention are the ones that are kind of easily understood by people, right? So, you know, just like gas prices going up gave a great chance for Republicans to beat, you know, the, the ESG industry and blame them for it. Um, it's in large part because people look at, you know, the gas prices are a great indicator of inflation and people's attitudes. Driving cars is also, but the reality is that some of the opportunity may actually end up being less attractive in some of those areas, even if we still need to do them. And it may end up being more attractive in, you know, areas that uh, zero in on your diet, for example, which for many people is a much bigger driver of emissions. But, you know, what do people think about when they think of oil? They think of your car, right? They're not really thinking of your burger. Um, or a whole host of other things like your T-shirt and everything else that one way or another use fossil fuels to, you know, to arrive in your possession. I think the, the bigger trend will be across some of those areas. And, and um, but across the across the board, there's no there's no magical solutions. Right. They're going to be difficult trade-offs, as Desiree mentioned. All right, maybe just a couple more questions before we wrap up. I knew this was going to be a popular discussion. Um, Lorcan is wondering, um, is there a role for the 17 Sustainable Development Goals and their 169 scientifically anchored targets to replace the broadly defined and understood ESG conceptual framework that enables green, social, and impact washing? Another doozy. That is a um, big question. I mean, that's, I mean, I'll just... For background, you know, ESG for some folks, you know, just means, um, you know, focusing on financial materiality. Um, so focusing for a company, um, you know, to focus on its own, you know, managing its own risk and spotting growth opportunities in this changing world. For others, ESG sustainability means positive impact. Um, it means aligning with the 17 um, sustainable development goals, of course. Um, there are plenty companies that are out there that are set up with purpose and mission, positive impact in mind. Sometimes that's environmental, sometimes that's social. Um, there are a lot of financial services companies that are set up to do just that. Um, you know, a lot of them are anchored under the B Corp umbrella. Um, so, you know, there is... Um, you know, that is, a, I believe, you know, a very authentic and real market, but it's small, right? Understand that. So there is this impact investing um, world, but again, it's, it's much smaller than, you know, business at large. So is there a role? Of course. And there are always, you know, wonderful creatives and, and, and passionate, you know, people, you know, aspiring to, you know, solve world problems. Um, but, you know, that is more of a, of a, a niche, niche market. Regular way companies, I think that's where we start getting into the, the, into the cultural war and the political back and forth. Companies, you know, are for-profit companies. They're focused on their own business models, fiduciary, um, you know, rules. Um, and, you know, they're not there to necessarily, they might espouse that they're aligning with a few of the SDGs, but truthfully, they're there to make money, to have a sustainable business there, not to solve necessarily, you know, biodiversity loss. All right. Yeah. Oh, go for it. <laughs> I agree. I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't add anything. 
All right, I think maybe just one last question. That's all we have time for. This is for Tarek specifically from Drummond. Is it a bit simplistic to reduce all S factors to immeasurable culture war inputs? Perhaps that applies to DEI actions, but companies have a wide range of human rights impacts and practices, and there should be an upside associated with competent management. Or would you advocate that this should be a question of complying with relevant law? Uh, I think it's a fair point in the sense that you're, I, I, would, I would say not so much that the S is totally irrelevant. It's that, it's that that is, I think, where a lot of the culture wars and a lot of Republican backlash is probably focused, right? Because to the extent you can show that you can do something on the E and, you know, it actually improves the bottom line. I haven't met any Republicans who, you know, or would, who would be upset by that, you know, uh, that you're making money by reducing your footprint. I think it's the S areas where you tend to touch areas where are they are more politicized. But that being said, there are a bunch of ones that aren't right. Supply chain, you know, labor, um, uh, you know, human rights and so on and so forth. So those tend to be important. Um, again, some of those are, you know, are important, for example, making sure you have worker safety and other things and you're not in violation. That strikes me as something that uh, any decent company in the U.S., which has half-decent risk management, doesn't want all sorts of liabilities and OSHA problems, probably would focus on. But there's a lot of things you can't touch, right? I mean, the fashion, the fast fashion industry is one of the most fascinating things, right? All of these brands you would think of as being extraordinarily exposed to emissions, right? And by some measures, the fashion industry's second biggest emitter. So, you know, you, you think that they all want to do something about it. When you actually get closer to it, you realize that they don't actually control their own supply chain. They don't want to control their own supply chain. They're going to go out to Bangladesh and say, hey, we want these T-shirts at the same price that we were doing before, which is like at a level of margin that you can't pay anyone anything. And, um, and by the way, you know, reduce your footprint while you're doing it. And if you actually ask the people in those countries, it's like, how are we supposed to do that here? But the truth is, do those companies actually want to own that supply chain? Probably not, right? Because they're just going to expose themselves to more risk. So, you know, I would say that there are substantive things in the S, but they get a lot. Some of them are culture war, not all of them, although those are the ones probably that I would imagine have annoyed some people on the political right the most and driven some of the backlash. Um, and there are some that you can't really control, but there are definitely real ones in there. Um, and I just don't know that, again, I would necessarily think of the, the guys of ESG in the same way, right? I mean, 20 years ago, I'm almost certain every single one of these things were being thought of. And I was learning to invest and like there was no acronym ESG, right? And having surfaced a bunch of stuff we were already doing and turned it into a bigger marketing narrative that had a whole bunch of PR value that is now reversed. I think we're just seeing sort of the reconstitution of a lot of those back where they belong in you know, core investment areas that just depend industry by industry, you know, where you sit and what point in time you are. All right, well, unfortunately, I think that's all the time we have for today. I just wanna give a massive thanks to Desiree and Tarek for joining me today. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, and we hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Our colleagues from Investors Business Daily will discuss how to understand technical action with support and resistance levels of stock charts. Thank you all for listening so much, and I hope you have a great day.